Rainbow Valley is a monthly podcast where your host Scott takes a look at key events and personalities that shaped one of the most influential, vibrant, tumultuous and swinging decades in history. Join us as we celebrate the 1960s with the stories surrounding the music and news events of the decade that shook the world. I'm not only a fighter, I'm a poet, I'm a prophet, I'm the resurrector, I'm the savior of the boxing world. If it wasn't for me, the game would be dead. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. I think it's all over. It is now. It's cool. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. The first year of this remarkable decade would bring us the Cold War, the Space Race, Traffic Wardens, Royal Births and Royal Weddings. Television will play a major part this year with the first ever televised trial, Grand National and Presidential Debate. Major changes in Africa, natural disasters worldwide, a new president, Coronation Street and the Flintstones. Along with the Shadows, Connie Francis and Elvis Presley, Ladies and gentlemen, Rainbow Valley is proud to present the story of the hits and the headlines from 1960. Nineteen sixty was a year for truly global news. Events would take place around the world and in space in this year whose influence would still be felt decades later. As well as the turning up of the heat under the Cold War between East and West, the focus would also be turned to Africa. As Harold Macmillan would prophetically state to the South African Parliament whilst on an Africa-wide tour at the beginning of the year, In the 20th century, and especially since the end of the war, The processes which gave birth to the nation-states of Europe have been repeated all over the world. We have seen the awakening of national consciousness 
in peoples who have for centuries lived in dependence upon some other power. Fifteen years ago, this movement spread through Asia. Many countries there of different races and civilizations pressed their claim to an independent national life. Today, same thing is happening in Africa. And the most striking of all the impressions that I've formed since I left London a month ago is of the strength of this African national consciousness. In different places, it takes different forms. But it is happening everywhere. The wind of change is blowing through this continent. And whether we like it or not, this growth of national consciousness is a political fact. And we must all accept it as a fact. And our national policies must take account of it. What do you want to make those eyes at me for? If they don't mean what they say. They make me glad. They make me sad. They make me want a lot of things that I never had. You fooling around. And sure enough, the wind of change not only blew through the continent this year, some might even have described it as a hurricane. That's all right. I'll get you alone tonight. A foul blow against France is how President de Gaulle described the French settler insurrection in Algiers in January this year. Appearing on national TV, he ordered his army to break up the unrest. It all began when de Gaulle dismissed General Jacques Massou as commander of the central Algerian region. The paratroop general, who had been regarded as a hero to French settlers and fighting soldiers, had criticised the Gaulle's offer of Algerian self-determination. By now, heavily armed French militia had occupied 45 positions in the public gardens by the university in central Algiers. Well-organised demonstrations brought more than 2,000 settler extremists to the barricades. Most of these were members of the militia, armed for self-protection against Algerian Muslims and led by student Pierre Lagayard. Paratroops and other regiments recalled from their war against Algerian Muslim rebels surrounded the barricades and their commanders were reluctant to order them into action against what was basically their own compatriots. The fear was that the French would end up killing French or the troops would just end up not obeying the orders as laid out by de Gaulle. Wanted to give her everything Flowers, presents And most of all, a wedding ring He saw a sign for a stock car race A thousand dollar prize it read He couldn't get Laura on the phone So to her mother, Tommy said Tell I love her Tell Laura I need 
There was rioting in Durban as a result of protests against the country's apartheid laws. British Somaliland and French Madagascar will gain their independence this year, along with Chad and the Central African Republic. And after 80 years of Belgian rule, Congo would join them. But within a matter of days, this would develop into a bitter civil war, resulting in martial law being declared and three different governments before the end of the year. There was also a state of emergency in Nyasaland, independence from Nigeria, and France would explode a third atomic bomb in the Sahara Desert. But without a doubt, the wind of change was felt most in South Africa. Demonstrations against the South African government's strict apartheid policies flare into shocking violence. At Sharpsville, an industrial township, thousands gather outside a police station in protest against new laws requiring every African to carry a pass at all times. The crowd refused to disperse and began stoning the police, who opened fire into the crowd from behind a wire fence. In two days of demonstrations that began here, between 50 and 100 were killed and hundreds injured. Worldwide protests were raised, including a condemnation of the violence by the United States State Department. In South Africa, a mass work boycott by Africans is crippling industry in the area. An uneasy calm reigns. The conditions that led to the Sharpsville tragedy continue unchanged. In March, 69 Africans died and 180 were injured when police opened fire in the black township of Sharpville in the Transvaal. 15,000 people were converged on the police station at Sharpville in protest against the introduction of pass laws which required Africans to always carry identity cards. They were met by a line of 75 armed police. Stones were thrown, the crowd rushed forward, the police opened fire. Later in the year there would also be an unsuccessful assassination attempt against South African Prime Minister Henrik Verwood, resulting in him being shot through his right ear and his right cheek. Still in Africa, Morocco to be precise, and the port city of Agadir, where in February this year a devastating earthquake shook the town. Although it measured a moderate 5.7 on the Richter scale, it left at least 35,000 people homeless and killed a staggering 15,000 people, a third of the town's entire population. Also to suffer earthquakes this year would be Iran and Chile, followed by massive tidal waves in Hawaii and Japan. I know 
As well as the natural disasters that shook the world this year, 1960 saw the worst air disaster up to this point in history. The terrible aftermath of the worst air disaster in history. In a Brooklyn street lies the shattered wreckage of a jet transport which collided with another airliner in murky New York skies. The jet plummeted into a brownstone residential section, killing an estimated seven persons on the ground, as well as 84 passengers and the crew. The impact area was a shambles of shattered tenements and business shops. Ten apartment buildings were set afire, and a borough-wide alarm sounded. Both planes were stacked up in landing patterns, both arriving from the west. One to land at Idlewild, the other bound for LaGuardia Field. Normally, they would have been separated by miles, but apparently the jet was 11 miles from where it should have been, straying into the flight path of the other plane with catastrophic results. Through the fiery havoc in Brooklyn, the crash of the other plane on Staten Island adds another bitter toll. Here, too, all aboard the ill-fated plane perish. Forty-four lives lost. Casualties on the ground were mercifully light. Both planes hit like fiery rockets and in the vicinity of crowded schools. Many of the passengers were flying on Christmas visits, carrying gifts for loved ones. Afterwards, the grisliest job was the effort to identify the broken remains of those who perished. Horror added to horror, shockingly emphasizing to the nation the terrible consequences of the aerial traffic jam in American skies. But if truth be told, people are probably making more of a fuss over this. The most publicised soldier since Napoleon, uh, Elvis Presley, with girlfriend Priscilla Beaulieu to see him off, was leaving Frankfurt at the end of his army service. So it was farewell to military glory and to 16-year-old Priscilla. What fame for that girl to have been a friend of the Emperor of Rock and Roll. At Fort Dix, New Jersey, newsreels, TV, the press, the lot, told the world how Elvis came marching home. For 17 interminable months, the cats hadn't seen him. What a price to pay for national defense. But he was home at last, Nancy Sinatra at his side, and the pelvis was all set to take up his career where he laid it down to keep the enemies of Uncle Sam on their side of the curtain. And have you noticed we don't hear half so much talk of that Cold War nowadays? One o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock, Quiet, everybody. Elvis is going to speak to the nation. Sobering army life changed your mind about rock and roll? Sobering army life? <laughs> uh, no, it hasn't. It, it, hasn't, it hasn't changed my mind because I was in tanks for a long time, you see. And uh, they rock and roll quite a bit. Shake an apple off an apple tree Shake a shake a sugar But you'll never shake me Uh-uh-uh No survey I'm gonna stick like glue Stick because I'm stuck on you I'm gonna run my fingers through your long black hair Squeeze you tighter than a grizzly bear Uh-uh-uh Yes, sir, I'm gonna stick like glue 
stick because I'm stuck on you. Hide in the kitchen, hide in the hall. Ain't gonna do you no good at all. Cause once I catch you and the kissing starts, a team of wild horses couldn't tear us apart. I'm gonna take a tiger from his daddy's side. And that's how a love is gonna keep us tied. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Stick like glue Stick because I'm stuck on you I am the kitchen, I am the hall Ain't gonna do you no good at all And the world of sport 1960 was an Olympic year and as well as the Winter Olympics in Squaw Valley, California the summer games took place in Rome there were British victories for Don Thompson in the men's 50km walk and for Anita Lonsborough in the women's 200m breaststroke. The 1960 Olympic Games were also notable for another gold medal winning performance, this time in boxing's light heavyweight division. And the bell saved him. Well, well, what a boxer this Clay is. For 18 years of age, the size of him, we're going to hear a lot more of this young man, I'd say. Boxes wildly, he's a lot to learn, but my goodness me, the effortless way he throws out those punches. He really pounded away there at his opponent from Poland, Brianskowski. So the Clay, that's unique. Also in boxing news, Floyd Patterson, in the second of his three fights with Ingemar Johansson of Sweden, became the first man in history to regain the undisputed heavyweight championship. In tennis, the 74th Wimbledon Championships featured an all-Australian men's final, with Neil Fraser beating Rod Laver in four sets. And in the women's final, Brazilian Maria Bueno defeated South African Sandra Reynolds 8-6-6 love. The 79th final of the world's oldest domestic football cup competition, the FA Cup, took place on the 7th of May this year. The match between Blackburn Rovers and Wolverhampton Wanderers took place at Wembley Stadium and was won for the fourth time in their history by Wolves. The final score was 3-0 thanks to a double from Norman Dealey and an own goal from Blackburn defender Mick McGrath. The 114th Grand National Aintree was won by nine-year-old Merriman II, ridden by Jerry Scott. And with odds at 13-2, to it was the first clear favourite to win for 33 years. This was also the first time that the race was broadcast live on television, with Pete Rose Sullivan commentating on the first of his 37 televised Grand Nationals. The Derby was won by St Paddy, ridden by Lester Piggott.
and in the boat race, Oxford beat Cambridge by one and a quarter lengths. In October, the World Series was won by the Pittsburgh Pirates for the first time since 1925, beating the New York Yankees. This series of games is famous for Game 7, where Bill Mazeroski hit a ninth-inning home run. The only time a winner-take-all World Series game had ended with a walk-off home run. Because I love you I'll always love you so Why? Because you love me No broken hearts for us Cause we love each other And with our faith and trust There could be no other Why? Cause I love you Why? Cause you love me in royal news, the Queen and Prince Philip's third child and second son, Prince Andrew, was born in Buckingham Palace on the 19th of February. Andrew was the first child to be born to a reigning monarch since the birth of Queen Victoria's youngest child, Princess Beatrice, in 1857. And in May this year, Princess Margaret married Anthony Armstrong Jones at Westminster Abbey. It was the first royal wedding to be broadcast on television, and more than 20 million viewers tuned in to watch it. Because you love me. We found a perfect love. Yes, a love that's yours and mine. I love you. The space race gathered speed this year following the successful launches of the Sputnik and Lunar satellites by the Russians the year before. This year would see Tiros 1, the first imaging weather satellite. There would also be launches for the first successful US spy satellite as well as the first passive communications satellite. But perhaps the most important development so far occurred in August this year when the Russians launched the Vostok 1K number 2. The occupants of this spacecraft were two dogs called Belka and Strelka, along with two rats and a variety of plants. After four orbits of the Earth, the craft was recovered safely 
and it was the first time that animals and plants had returned alive from space, thereby paving the way for future manned flights. Strelka gave birth to a litter of puppies a year later, one of which was sent to First Lady Jackie Kennedy as a goodwill present from the Soviet Union. President Kennedy's advisers initially opposed taking the dog through fear that it may have had microphones implanted into its body and it would be able to listen in on national defence meetings. In the UK chart, there were 17 number ones this year. The longest being Elvis Presley, with its now or never spending two months at the top of the chart. Cliff Richard and the Shadows hit the number one spot officially three times this year. I Love You won the coveted Christmas number one position, and Please Don't Tease managed to reach number one on two occasions. The Shadows themselves had a massive success without Cliff, and Apache was number one for five weeks over the summer. In the US Billboard chart there were 20 number ones, with Elvis hitting the top spot three times, including the Christmas number one. You know I need your tender touch, but you tell me that you love me, baby. The biggest hit of the year was undoubtedly Theme from a Summer Place by Percy Faith and his orchestra, which spent nine weeks at number one. There you say you want to love me like the hurricane, then you stop to breathe.
Up until 1959, if a publisher published a book that had a tendency to deprave and corrupt, they would be liable to prosecution and even imprisonment. In 1959, the new Obscene Publications Act meant that if a book could show that it had significant literary merit, it could escape prosecution. So, Penguin Books planned to publish D.H. Lawrence's Lady Chatterley's Lover in 1960. The book told in explicit detail the scandalous affair between an aristocratic woman and her husband's gamekeeper. The book had been written in 1928 but never published in this country through fear of prosecution. In a highly publicised trial, Regina vs Penguin Books Limited gripped the nation in October and early November this year. But the decision to prosecute Penguin felt as if it was a little out of touch with the times. Society was changing. Ideas about sex and morality were being challenged. The pill had been approved for use this year and would be introduced by the NHS to married women only in 1961. The defence had to convince the jury at the Old Bailey that the style and language of the book as a whole was in the interests of science, literature, art or learning. The defence approached 300 people and had 35 witnesses. Statements were read out defending the book from E.M. Forster and Graham Greene. One puzzling aspect of the trial, however, was that the prosecution called no witnesses. Observers were of the opinion that perhaps the prosecution were overconfident and believed that they had won the case. But in reality, the prosecution was so detached from public opinion and society that famously, Mr Mervyn Griffith Jones for the prosecution asked the jury on day six of the trial if it were a book that you would wish your wife or servant to read. Such a lovely sight to see But they're trying But with each other Eventually, on November the 2nd, the courtroom erupted into cheers and applause as the jury ruled that the novel was not obscene. There is little doubt that this result ushered in the liberalisation of publishing, and many believe that this was the point where what would become known as the permissive society in Britain truly began. Featuring 13 bouts of sexual intercourse between Lady Chatley and Mellors, the gamekeeper, Penguin immediately released the 200,000 copies it had waiting to distribute, selling them at the very affordable price of three and six. This is Gillian Mather, who's been selling these Lady Chatterleys at a very high speed. Is it like ordinary selling, or are people rather shy about it? Well, some of them just ask for Lady C, some just give you three and six, and others ask for Lady Chatterley. Mr. MacDonald, I gather that you, like almost every other public librarian, have ordered and have got your Penguin copies of Lady Chatterley. How many have you ordered? We have 14. 14? Is that enough? It's enough for the present demand. Are you going to put this book on the open shelves? Are you going to display it in the library? No, we shan't do that. We don't want the book to fall into the hands of any unsuspecting people who might be shocked when they get it. Do you think you'll never display it? We might at some distant time, but for the present, no. 
Georgia Georgia The whole day through Just an old sweet song Keeps Georgia on my mind In May 1960, Argentina was celebrating the 150th anniversary of its revolution against Spain. As there was an increased number of people, especially tourists, flying into the country at this time, the Israeli intelligence service Mossad took the opportunity to smuggle more of their agents into the country. And on May 23rd, Israeli Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion announced that Nazi war criminal Adolf Eichmann had been captured and would stand trial in Israel. Eichmann was the Nazi SS officer who had organised Hitler's final solution of the Jewish question and had been appointed to coordinate the identification, the assembly and transportation of millions of Jews from occupied Europe to the Nazi death camps. Following the war, he escaped captivity in 1946, avoiding the Nuremberg International War Crimes Tribunal. And after travelling across Europe and the Middle East under several different identities, he arrived in Argentina, which was noted for its lax immigration policies and was a safe haven for many Nazi war criminals. Mossad operatives snatched Eichmann on the street in Buenos Aires as he was walking home after getting off a bus. He was drugged and nine days later flown out of Argentina disguised as an Israeli airline worker who had suffered head trauma in an accident. The decision to remove him this way was taken as Israel knew that Argentina would never extradite Eichmann and indeed they demanded his return. But Israel argued that it had the right to proceed with a trial due to Eichmann's status as an international war criminal. It was the first trial ever to be televised, and although he claimed throughout that he was only following orders, he faced 15 charges including crimes against humanity, crimes against the Jewish people and war crimes. Finding him guilty on all counts in December, judges sentenced him to die. He was eventually hanged near Tel Aviv two years later. His body was cremated and his ashes thrown into the sea. I said just an old sweet song Keeps Georgia on my Skint. Oh, my old man's a dustman, he wears a dustman's hat. He wears gold blimey trousers and he lives in the council flat. 
He looks a proper nana in his great big cocktail boots. He's got such a job to pull them up, but he calls them Daisy Roots. Following the instalment of the first parking meter in Grosvenor Square in 1958, September this year saw the arrival of London's first traffic wardens. The very first ticket issued was to one Dr Thomas Creighton, who was answering an emergency call to a West End hotel to help a heart attack victim. The medics for popular was promptly ticketed, but such was the outcry at his case that he was let off the £2 fine. It's not known how many of the other 343 recipients of tickets on that day also escaped payment, if any. One of our cameramen went behind the scenes to see what the Metropolitan Police have up their sleeve. This fine body of 50-year-olds, that's the average age, are the first of the new traffic wardens in training to keep the traffic flowing. Mostly former servicemen, they soon finish their basic training. How can we prevent the ever-increasing traffic halting into one big jam? Parking meters in the city of Westminster have done something, but there are still scores of streets and squares being turned into unofficial car parks. But what can you do? You've got to park somewhere. All right, but not in the wrong places, says Scotland Yard. So, from now on, the traffic wardens will see that parking meter rules are observed, as well as informing motorists where they can park, and coming down on those who do so in forbidden spots. And it's all going to be done courteously. No slanging matches, just say what awful weather we're having, sir, and find him two pounds. Here's a car that's overstayed its time, so take the number, out with a fine book, and when the driver comes back, he gets a friendly intimation that he must send the money by post. Parking penalties remain, but other offences carry a fine of £2. Having thoroughly filmed it all, our cameraman went back to his car, his service to the community performed. Well, there's gratitude for you. Kyle Chessman, also known as the Red Light Bandit, a convicted robber, kidnapper and rapist, was finally executed on May the 2nd this year. I say finally because Chessman had been fighting the death penalty for 12 years before finally becoming the first modern American to be executed for a non-lethal kidnapping. The case gained worldwide attention and helped propel the movement to abolish capital punishment in California. The story is also notable as on the morning of the execution, Chessman's lawyer was still fighting with the appeal trying to convince a judge that another suspect had been found. The judge took his time reading the brief, and by the time his secretary had placed the call to death row, allegedly after misdialing and wasting valuable time, Chessman was already dead.
The relationship between the USA and the USSR after World War II would dominate international affairs for decades. It was known as the Cold War and would lead to several major crises including the Hungarian Uprising in 1956 and in the 60s the Cuban Missile Crisis, Vietnam and the Berlin Wall. A clash of very different beliefs and ideology, capitalism versus communism, each held with almost religious conviction formed the basis of an international power struggle with both sides vying for dominance, exploiting every opportunity for expansion anywhere in the world. And so, in 1960, a series of events would occur that would see the Cold War begin to defrost, and the heat generated would bring the world to the brink of nuclear war the following year. In April, refugees, mainly small farmers, crossed the East German border into West Berlin. It was estimated that just over 5,000 applied to be recognised as refugees that Easter weekend. The influx stemmed from the completion of the communist programme of forced collectivisation of small farms, and Berlin had not witnessed anything like this since the East Berlin Uprising in June 1953. The West Berlin Reception Centre strained under the pressure of so many people, as it was only used to dealing with about 300 people per day. Two former camps had to be opened with the usual process of screening the refugees for communist infiltrators having to be abandoned temporarily. Refugees were flown into West Germany, and it soon became apparent with so many farmers without land arriving, it would soon become difficult to integrate them into the working population, as there was already thousands of refugees waiting for land. May the 2nd, the Russians announced to the world that they had shot down an American U-2 spy aircraft which they claimed had violated Soviet airspace in an attempt to wreck the upcoming major summit talks. Initially, the Americans stated that the aircraft, piloted by Francis Gary Powers, 
had strayed off course while carrying out weather research. The State Department in Washington claimed that the cameras on board were for taking pictures of clouds and were initially unaware that Powers had survived the crash. Embarrassment for Eisenhower swiftly followed as Khrushchev told the world that Powers had come clean about his mission and Moscow proudly displayed newsreel footage of recovered wreckage from the plane, including its sophisticated spy equipment. By the 17th of May, in Paris, after three days of bitter recrimination and diplomatic farce, the much-anticipated summit between the Big Four, Eisenhower, Khrushchev, Macmillan and de Gaulle, finally fizzled out. The hopes were that the conference would start to bring about East-West reproachment, but the Soviet leader adopted what was described as wrecking tactics as he angrily and repeatedly demanded a public apology from President Eisenhower for the U-2 incident. Khrushchev also wanted a promise that such an intrusion of Soviet airspace would never occur again. Eisenhower rejected the demands and expressed complete disgust at the Soviets' behaviour. Eventually, three months later, a Soviet court sentenced Powers to ten years' detention for flying a spy mission over the Soviet Union. Sentence dictated that Powers was to spend three years in prison and the rest in a labour camp.
steadfastly as long as he Khrushchev's angry behaviour would again make headlines in September when at the United Nations General Assembly he heckled and thumped his desk at Harold Macmillan. When the Philippine delegate Lorenzo Sumalong accused the USSR of imperialism in Eastern Europe, this only infuriated Khrushchev even more, who then removed one of his shoes and began beating his desk with it, calling his accuser a jerk and an American stooge. It was also here at the 15th General Assembly that Khrushchev would meet Cuban leader Fidel Castro for the first time. tensions were gathering pace between East and West, racial tensions increased in the US in a year that also saw a presidential election. In January, Senator John F. Kennedy threw his hat into the ring of presidential hopefuls with campaign offices throughout the country headed by his brother Robert. And almost immediately, it was clear that his nearest rival, Senator Hubert Humphrey, would have a tough fight on his hands as he trailed Kennedy in the opinion polls. Kennedy had previously resolved to run for president five years earlier during a long stay in hospital following a series of spinal operations. He had first run for the Democratic nomination in 1956, but was pipped as Adlai Stevenson's running mate by Estes Cafalva. Kennedy knew that in order to win the nomination, and eventually the presidency, he would have to overcome two obstacles, namely his inexperience and the fact that he was a Catholic. 
In February, Martin Luther King was arrested for perjury in connection with his state income taxes in 1956, and a bomb went off at the home of one of the first black pupils to attend Little Rock Central High School. On March the 1st, 1,000 black students staged a peaceful protest against segregation in Montgomery, Alabama. Martin Luther King urged Eisenhower to intervene in order to defuse the racial tension there. Eventually, on the 16th in Washington, Eisenhower advised southern states to set up biracial talks in order to hear black grievances against segregation. One of these days when you need my kiss and one of these days when you want me to Don't turn around cause I'll be missing Then you want to my love, baby Oh well, then you want to my love, baby You can dance Every dance with the guy who gives the eye let him hold you tight you can smile every smile for the man who held your hand neath the pale light but don't forget who's taking you home and in whose arms you're gonna be so darling say the last dance for me Oh, I know, oh, I know that the music's yes, fine like sparkling oh, wine. Go and have your yes, fun. I know. Oh, I know. Laugh and sing. Yes, I know. But while we're oh, apart, don't give your yes, heart to anyone. Oh, but yes, don't forget who's taking you home and in whose arms you're gonna be. So, darling, say the last dance for me. Don't you know I love you so Can't you feel it when we touch I will never, never let you go I love you oh so much Following the first primary in New Hampshire, John Kennedy and Richard Nixon emerged as favourites to be presidential candidates. But the Democrats were being urged by Senator Robert Byrd to vote for Hubert Humphrey in the West Virginia primary that would take place in May. The reason... Kennedy's youth and lack of experience. In the worst ever race riot in Mississippi, ten blacks were shot after gathering on a segregated beach. Eventually, Kennedy won in Nebraska and West Virginia, as well as a massive 70% of the vote in Maryland. 
Humphrey bowed out gracefully, promising his support for the Kennedy campaign. And on July the 13th, he won the Democratic presidential nomination in Los Angeles after beating Senator Lyndon Johnson. In his acceptance speech on July the 15th, Kennedy spoke of the nation moving to a new frontier. For the problems are not all solved, and the battles are not all won. And we stand today on the edge of a new frontier, the frontier of unknown opportunities and perils, the frontier of unfilled hopes and unfilled threats. The new frontier is here, whether we seek it or not. He linked himself with the two great Democratic presidents of the century, Wilson and Roosevelt. He said that Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal promised security and succour to those in need, but in the new frontier of which I speak is not a set of promises, it is a set of challenges. This was a direct appeal to the frontier spirit in which the early Americans settled the vast empty lands of the West. And in a judicious move to win votes in the South, Kennedy chose Texan Lyndon Johnson as his running mate. The rivals campaigned determinedly throughout the summer of 1960, with Nixon edging ahead in the polls to gain a slight lead. Things began to change however in August, when Nixon took a massive blow when a reporter asked President Eisenhower to name some of Vice President Nixon's contributions. Eisenhower, who was exhausted and vexed after a long press conference, replied, If you give me a week I might think of one, I don't remember. And while the comment was intended as a self-deprecated allusion to the president's own mental fatigue, the Democrats immediately jumped on it by using it in a TV commercial, stating, President Eisenhower could not remember, but the voters will remember. That same month, Nixon bashed his knee on a car door while campaigning in North Carolina and developed an infection that landed him in hospital. He emerged two weeks later, frail, sallow and 20 pounds underweight. This would prove important as on September 26, public image would prove vital, as the presidential candidates would take part in the first ever televised presidential debate. Most radio listeners would declare the first debate a draw, but TV viewers noticed how prepared Kennedy was against Nixon's exhaustion. Even the fact that Kennedy appeared tanned and healthy would nudge him ahead. Kennedy nailed it during all of the debates, staring directly into the camera as he answered each question. Nixon, on the other hand, looked off to the side to address the various reporters. This came across as shifting his gaze to avoid eye contact with the public, a damaging blunder for a man already known derisively as Tricky Dicky. Kennedy won over the 70 million viewers by a massive margin. And so, on November the 9th, John Fitzgerald Kennedy emerged as the new President of the United States by the slimmest of margins. He managed to obtain 120,000 more in the popular vote than his Republican opponent. At 43, Kennedy was the youngest man to win the presidency, and was also the first Roman Catholic. I ask your help in this effort, and I can assure you that uh, every degree of mind and spirit that I possess will be devoted to the long-range interests of the United States. 
and to the cause of freedom around the world. So now uh, my wife and I prepare for a new administration and uh, for a new baby. Thank you. It is the climax of one of the closest, most dramatic elections in American history. The first animated primetime American TV series, The Flintstones, was first broadcast on ABC on the 30th of September this year. Its initial run will be for just over six years, and the Hanna-Barbera cartoon will remain the most financially successful network animated franchise for 30 years until the dawn of The Simpsons. year would end with the screening of the very first episode of the world's longest running TV soap opera Coronation Street and the 31st of December will witness the last intake of troops into Britain's national service. Just before midnight on the 16th of April in Chippenham in Wiltshire, a taxi carrying rock and rollers Eddie Cochran and Gene Vincent, along with two other passengers, blew a tyre and crashed into a lamppost. Vincent sustained lasting injuries to an already permanently damaged leg that would shorten his career and affect him for the rest of his life. Cochran, who was seated in the middle of the back seat, threw himself over his girlfriend Sharon Sheely to protect her, but he was thrown out of the car when the door flew open. Everyone was rushed to the hospital, and Eddie Cochran died the following day about 4pm of severe head injuries. As a side note, the car and other items from the crash were impounded at the local police station until the inquest could be held. Police cadet at the station, David Harmon, who would later go on to find fame as Dave D from Dave D, Dozy Beaky Mick and Titch, taught himself to play guitar on Cochrane's impounded Gretsch. The same guitar that had been carried to the car earlier in the tour by a young 12-year-old lad called Mark Feld. Mark Feld, a few years later, would become better known to the world as Mark Boland of T-Rex, and he himself would die in a car crash in 1977.
This year we also bid farewell to authors Albert Camus, Neville Shute and Boris Pasternak. November saw the deaths of silent movie legend Max Sennett and Hollywood heartthrob Clark Gable. Gable passed away at the age of 59 following a heart attack whilst making his latest movie, The Misfits, which would also turn out to be the final film appearance for Marilyn Monroe. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Notable movies of 1960 included The Magnificent Seven, Saturday Night, Sunday Morning, The Apartment, The Alamo, Exodus and Elmer Gantry. At the Academy Awards presented in April, which would honour the movies from 1959, the evening was dominated by Ben-Hur. Ben-Hur won 11 Oscars and broke the all-time record of nine set the year before by Gigi. Ben-Hur would remain the most honoured movie in Academy Award history until Titanic equalled the feat in 1997 and again in 2003 by The Return of the King. And in August, the latest offering from the Master of Suspense was unleashed to a public that would be unprepared for what they were about to witness on the big screen. Psycho was released this year to worldwide acclaim. But the story behind the making, marketing and the impact of the film is worthy of an entire episode to itself. Next time, why don't you join me as I tell the story of the movie that will bring Alfred Hitchcock both criticism and praise in equal measure. A movie that will make a star of Anthony Perkins, bring us Hollywood's first flushing toilet and would make people afraid to go in the shower because after all, we all go a little mad sometimes. See you next time as I bring you the story of The Making of Psycho. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on Twitter at RV underscore podcast. Join our Facebook group at Facebook forward slash Rainbow Valley Podcast or take a look at our website rainbowvalley.org. You can send us your thoughts and feedback to rainbowvalleypod at gmail.com and you can also email me at that address and I'll send you a bonus mixtape episode featuring music relating to today's show. This has been a Stinking Pause production.